this is episode 12 of Fam Life with Phil Gomez on the Rising Man podcast. Our guest for today is Jeremy Richardson. Yo, yo, what's good, y'all? Phil Gomez, Fam Life, Rising Man podcast. We back at it again. Welcome to Fam Life, where we talk all things relationship lifestyle and really focus on amplifying the voices of people of color got a really special guest for today but before i get into that i want to remind you guys of compass we got 2023 coming up and we have a whole array of compasses in different areas across the country coming to you now compass is a four-day solo fast in nature and it is a rite of passage it's something that's been part of all of our lineages throughout time now, rites of passage, which is probably something you've seen in movies or heard of in epic tales of heroes, but it's a real life thing. And although we've lost it in our culture, it is something that each and every man craves. It's something that we all need. It is a act that we take that enables us to cross a threshold and really step into a new phase of life. So if you are a man who's looking to draw a line in the sand and really step into that next phase of life powerfully, Compass is definitely for you. If you want to get some more information, check out the website, see what Compass aligns with you most as far as date and location, and come join us. Come join the family. Come fast and really claim that future you are looking forward to step into. All right, so our guest for today is Jeremy Richardson. Now, Jeremy is one of the men on my men's team. Uh, he is a man that has always been an inspiration to me. Such a well-rounded guy, incredibly smart. He is very ethereal and very grounded, which is probably what I love about him the most. In our conversation today, we talk about his transition from graduating MIT and co-founding his first startup at the age of 23, how that startup was extremely successful, yet he still walked away from it because of his spiritual awakening. We talk about the depth of his spiritual awakening and how in that process he was able to really dive deeper into the underlying causes of his anxiety, his stress, and his insecurity, and how he was able to address those things, face off with them, and truly heal them. We talk a lot about ancestral healing. We talk about insecurity in men of color. We talk about alchemizing anger and resentment and turning that into forgiveness. And we also talk about Jeremy reconnecting to his artistic side and how that aspect of creation and being a channel is something he was able to put into every other domain of his life that and so much more very dynamic conversation i hope you enjoy it without further ado here's jeremy richardson all right rising man crew got one of my dear brothers on the call today jeremy richardson jeremy how you doing today man doing really well how about yourself I am doing great. You know, sometimes I wish I was where you are over there in Hawaii, <laughs> nice and warm. Instead, I'm in uh, Lake Tahoe, which is very beautiful, but it's uh, it was like 12 degrees today. I was shoveling snow and hands were getting all cold. And I was just thinking about you being warm and toasty, looking at the looking at the ocean over there. Yeah, it was a little chilly this morning. It was around 70 or so. So, you know, <laughs> it's a tough life. Someone's got to live it. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, I'm really grateful that you 
said yes to the invitation to be on here. Um, you are someone I have thought of being on this segment, uh, being on Fam Life. You know, as I told you, it's all about relationship, lifestyle, and amplifying the voices of people of color. And um, you are a man of color that I respect deeply. Uh, I think you, you have such a well-rounded story and you're just a well-rounded man. And in our friendship, we're just able to talk about everything because uh, you can go all places. So let's just kick it off. Uh, kind of little intro, little life story. Just let us know who you are, man. Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the, the intro. I definitely appreciate you inviting me on. It definitely feels like an honor to be on the podcast. So um, yep. My name's Jeremy. I was born and raised in Wisconsin, grew up in Milwaukee and Kenosha County. Um, went to college in Boston at MIT, graduated there with a degree in mechanical engineering and uh, basically got out to California as soon as I could because I really love it out there and uh, mostly love not having snow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so got to California and very quickly got into the, the tech startup scene out there. And uh, at 23, co-founded a company called Wompley. It was a software startup and was definitely blessed to have found something that through a lot of hard work uh, over about five years, we grew to, from two of us to about 100 employees, about $20 million raised in venture capital. And uh, we were growing faster than ever. It was uh, 2015, but I actually started having uh, my spiritual, my first spiritual awakening, I would say, uh, around that time too. And combination of burnout, uh, working 80 to 100 hours a week for four years straight, pretty much, um, coupled with my spiritual awakening, uh, led me to leaving the company, even though we were growing faster than ever um, and on a really you know, accelerated trajectory. Um, and that's when I would say my life really started to uh, take off in a really more interesting way and deeper way. Um, you know, with the spiritual awakening comes a lot of healing, you know, uncovering trauma that I didn't even know was there, you know, on all areas of my life. Um, but also that spaciousness, uh, leaving the kind of structured work world also helped me rediscover my artistic side. So I got more into art. I built a 20 foot tall, tall sculpture, brought to Burning Man, uh, started making laser cut sacred geometry mandalas, which I still do today called activated art. Uh, that period is also when I met my now wife, Gigi, and uh, you know we've been together for seven years now, so I'm sure we'll probably dive into some relationship stuff on this conversation. And uh, I basically wanted to, you know, correct, like create my own way. So we got into coaching, started a coaching business that uh, burned out and failed, which you know, we can or cannot go into. But it was a really tough time in my life because uh, I really didn't want to have to get a job that I hated. Um, which are most jobs for me, <laughs> but, uh, we were running out of money. And so I had to kind of bite the bullet and figure out how to get back into the workforce after taking three years off, uh, not working, which was a kind of a sabbatical that I'm really grateful for. And I grew a lot, but after that, at that point I had to get back into the startup world. So I was a VP of product at two different startups over the course of about three years. Um, that's when COVID hit and, uh, you know, in all, all of the kind of obviously, you know, bad aspects of COVID, it was, has been a blessing for us in certain ways in, in the sense of with remote work, uh, my wife and I were finally able to move to Hawaii because that was a dream we had since 2018. Uh, we just didn't know how we were going to get here. But because of COVID, remote working, we were like, let's go. You know, we we're kind of done with California, the Bay Area. 
So we moved here to the Big Island, Hawaii, about uh, almost two years ago now. And I was still working at the last job I had at that point, but uh, kind of circling back, the startup that I co-founded that I left in 2015, you know, they were still growing and my co-founder and president and everyone was still running the company. And uh, just last year, they had an exit. Um, I can't give the details, but it was very successful in a life-changing kind of way. And so that in the past year or so really opened up uh, doors, kind of really a new life for, for me and my wife, which we're really, really blessed to, to have experience and to have. And so now we're here in Hawaii in the Big Island and, uh, yep, just living our lives now. Yeah, man, that's that's a pretty incredible story. And there's there's so many themes and um, different aspects in there. So would love to dive into dive into it a bit more and just unpack it a bit more. Um, yeah, let's go. Let's start with college, college and transitioning <laughs> into uh, co-founding a company at 23. Uh-huh. Um, what was that? You know, MIT is a pretty good school from what I've heard. So, (laughs) so, uh, was that, you know, I guess, was it always part of your plan to go to college? Uh, did you like dream of going to MIT? You know, what, what was kind of that Mm -hmm. process for you? That's a good question. That's interesting. I never really, I never think about that much. So I have, I would say I have my mom, uh, primarily to thank for, uh, nudging me, nudging me (laughs) to go to MIT. Um, I actually remember when I was probably 12 or so. So my brother is six years older than me. He's also a mechanical engineering mind. And uh, I remember actually when he was looking at colleges, we went to MIT, me him and my dad went to MIT together. So I was probably, I must've been 12 um, at that time. And he wanted to stay closer to home. So he went, he ended up going to school in Michigan, but that was, I guess the seed was kind of planted. I remember being on the campus when I was 12 or so, but interestingly, you know, I was always had good grades. I did well in school as I feel blessed to have been born with the ability to excel at school pretty naturally. You know, I know not everyone has that. So I've always been grateful for, for that. And, but even, even though, even that, even though I, I just didn't really think about college much in high school, you know, I got good grades, but I didn't really think much about the future. I, what I knew was I wanted to be very successful and some kind of entrepreneur I would say that was instilled in me by the media, you know, seeing all the business moguls, Steve Jobs, et cetera, be so successful. Um, but I didn't really think about how to get there. But yeah, around junior year, my mom was like, I want you to go to MIT. And uh, so I was like, okay. And, you know, senior year, we started the application process. And uh, I had a lot of help from her, from my guidance counselor, mostly because I wasn't the best writer. So I needed help on the kind of verbal written aspects of the application and SAT and that kind of thing. But yeah, I was, um, I feel blessed to have gotten into MIT early. My other option was going to apply to Caltech, but uh, it was December 31st. The deadline to apply to Caltech was like 20 minutes away. And I was like, I'd already gotten into MIT, into MIT and I was like, I'm just going to go to MIT. I think that's a good choice. I'm going to, I don't feel like applying to Caltech. So <laughs> I'm going to go that way. Awesome, man. That pretty cool. How, you know, you see it when you're 12, right. And then, and then you, uh, and ends up being the school that you go to. I also really like that there was kind of always this sense of a entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. within you. And, um, you know, we talk about vision a lot at Rising Man. So it sounded like you kind of, even though it wasn't this clear picture of what it was going to look like, there Mm -hmm. was always like 
some sort of knowing that you wanted to take an endeavor into, you know, being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. Yeah, it was like dream big was kind of my mantra. You know, I wouldn't call it that in high school, but that's what I would, you know, in my, you know, instant messenger, remember the aim days in your yep. profile thing, like at the, I would always have dream big in there in high school and something in me just knew that I, I really enjoy, I'm passionate about kind of pushing my own boundaries and doing things in kind of unorthodox kind of way. And uh, I just, I've always felt this potential inside of me and I've always had a really strong desire to fulfill it, you know, as much as I can. You know, I remember, you know, so on the racial side, you know, I grew up in Wisconsin, Silver Lake, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. it was 2000 person town. We were the only black family in the entire town. I was the only black kid in my school growing up. Um, high school, we moved to a, a bigger city. So there were more people of color, but still, you know, the racial, racial aspects was there. And when I, uh, first showed one of my teachers, my, that I, when I first told them I wanted to apply to MIT, uh, she flat out told me she didn't think I have what it takes, you know, wow. this is a teacher telling me that. And I was, uh, I took, it, I was like, okay. And I just walked away. Obviously I didn't use her as a recommendation. But no, that, that kind of experience like motivates me, you know, I'm like, I'll show you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I remember when I showed my guidance counselor, I showed him the MIT application letter and I, I watched in real time him go from like this kind of crazy, holy shit. I can't believe that you're even thinking about that to like, okay, let's do this. You know, that was the kind of support that I really obviously needed and was really grateful to have, you know, not the other, other kind of reaction. Um, but yeah, something in me, just like, I I knew I've had this potential and I knew I wanted to fulfill it. And I, I feel grateful to have had the confidence to be able to go after my dreams in spite of, you know, challenges, you know, which we all have in lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's very apparent, even in just the brief life recap that you gave at the top of this episode here. And um, yeah, dream big. I I can definitely see that (laughs) really a context that you carry and that I've seen in you since we first met. Um, Do you think, where where do you think that came from? Do you think this is something that's just innate? You were born with a gift skill, Mm. you know, just part of your, the cloth that you're cut from. Do you feel like that was something that was uh, curated by your parents? Yeah. Where do you think mm-hmm. that, that that essence comes from? That's a really good question. I would say it's a combination. I definitely feel like there's this inherent, it, it, it feels in me like innate. Um, but I definitely, you know, my mom, when we were, when I was a kid, we would, she would take us around Whitefish Bay, which is like the uppity part of Milwaukee, like right along Lake Michigan, these big mansions, you know, and she would just take, drive us around that neighborhood to look at these huge houses when I was a kid. And like that, that's all, that still stands out, you know, as a, the feeling of I could have this or I could create this, that she was instilling in us as children and me as children. My dad, he was an entrepreneur all of his life, you know, and unfortunately not always successful, which I learned a lot from and actually motivated me to be successful. You know, sometimes the pain is what motivates us to be successful. Right. But Still, in spite of his uh, challenges, which he had many challenges in, in various ways, um, he never gave up. You know, he, he always had grit. He always worked really hard. And, and, he, and, and I saw that. And so I would say it's a combination of, you know, I was born with it. But I also I feel like my parents definitely uh, played a strong role in, in helping me 
see beyond my circumstance for myself too. Incredible. Yeah. I think, I think with, when you ask someone why they are the way they are, you know, some of it is intrinsic, some of it is extrinsic, but Mm -hmm. I always find it's helpful to reflect back on it. And, you know, for people that are listening to this, especially young guys that are maybe, you know, college age, about to enter college or just out of college, I think, um, I think that the audacity to dream big is something we all want. And I know for myself, it's, it's something that scares the shit out of me a lot, you know, (laughs) and like, who, who am I to, to uh, give myself the permission to think that I can actually achieve that, you know? So when we see a man that's able to do it authentically, which I think you do extremely well, um, I always love to, to learn more about it. Like, where does it come Mm -hmm. from? How do I curate that more myself? And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, especially Mm -hmm. when we talk about your spiritual awakening and all that. So you go to MIT and then, and then you have the, you co-found the the startup. Mm -hmm. Now, is this something, was that right after school? Did you work for someone first? Or did you just like, nah, I'm not doing that. So (laughs) I left. This is a funny part of the story, but it was, uh, so I get to, to, to California and I actually get a job doing mechanical engineering at first. That was my degree. That's what I knew. Um, and I, I got my number two choice as far as companies I wanted to work for. So I was happy about that, but very quickly, I only, I only lasted seven months, man. I, it felt so soul sucking to work at this. I mean, it was a nice product design firm. It was like what I thought I wanted to do, but it was just like, I didn't have any passion for it. And in the meantime, I was just kind of running around the Bay Area, you know, meeting people, making friends, kind of like having fun yeah, as a 22 year old does. And um, I was able to, you know, meet people that were in the kind of the Silicon Valley software startup space. And um, especially through my MIT connections, right? There's a lot of people from MIT out there in that space. And so uh, within seven months of moving to California, getting a kind of engineering job, I actually, I would say this was the scariest decision I ever made in my life so far. Uh, I knew a founder of a startup, very small, two people working out of an apartment in Mountain View, California. And um, it's called Mixed Panel. They're pretty successful now. And the founder, he approached me and he, he, and I, and we had gotten to know each other. We were friends and he was like, you know, I want you to come do BD for me. I was like, what's BD It's business development, which people know now, I know now, but it's, it's a standard term. And so he knew that I was kind of hungry, that I, that I was kind of a go-getter and, you know, he, he, it was an experiment for him because he was like kind of testing what kind of roles would fit for his company. But I was, you know, 22 mechanical engineer, no sales experience or anything in my life and approached with this opportunity to lead essentially sales for a very small startup. And I remember sitting at my computer, looking at my, my roommate and I was like, I think I'm going to do this. And it was terrifying. Like I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I had this feeling that it was the right thing to do. And it was exciting and it was an opportunity to help build a company. And that's really what, what excited me. So the next day I, I left, I gave my notice at my engineering job. And uh, it's funny, you know, I think I've quit one, two, three jobs now. And it's like quitting my job is always, has always been like the most beautiful days of my life. <laughs> Cause I've always Talk done it with something off your shoulders. Yeah. And like to, to pursue something I'm really passionate about. Right. So so yeah, so I got into the startup, like software startup scene at Mixpanel. That actually wasn't the right role for me. I lasted four months, but it was clearly it wasn't working. So we parted ways. And then 
my brother was, he went to Stanford for grad school. So he was out there too in Palo Alto. So I was crashing on his floor for about nine months, uh, collecting unemployment, fortunately, which I realized I could do because I got fired from the previous job. And uh, in that nine months, my goal was to either start a company or find a company to uh, a startup to work at like a really early stage. And so I, I would say I was blessed, you know, to be able to have my brother's floor, literally I was sleeping on a yoga mat for nine months, uh, you know, super low budget, balling on a budget, I used to call it. And uh, you just try to find my way. And eventually I met a guy, I, I was on this kind of internet forum and there's a question, what startups are hiring salespeople? And there's an answer, this guy named Toby, and he said, we're hiring salespeople. So I just emailed them, say, here's some of my background, let's talk. We met at a cafe in Palo Alto and I just had a feeling like I had a really strong feeling that that was going to turn into something. And it was actually a company that didn't come to fruition at that point. But I think that's kind of a, a, an undercurrent or a theme of my life is having a really strong feeling that something, even though it's scary or irrational, feels like the right move for me. And I had that feeling. So I just I just knew something about it. Like, And so... It wasn't until maybe five months later that we actually started working together. In the meantime, I'd went to Europe, couch surfing for two months, just like having fun. And uh, when I was there, he we had a phone call, me and, and, and Toby, my, my now co-founder. And he's like, hey, that original idea, I had a dream and it morphed into something else. You know, do you want to come work on it with me? And um, I was like, yeah. So I booked a ticket, came back from Europe. And um, we started working on Wompley in, uh, sometime in 2011, like early 2011. And so Wompley, that's the company that uh, I co-founded. I was 23 at that time uh, that became the successful one. Wow. So there's uh, something is coming up for me and, and it's failure, right? Mm -hmm. And the question is like, what's your relationship to failure? Because in this story you're telling, there's several different parts that I think many people might consider a failure at a certain point or, you know, for example, if I was in that position and uh, got a job after school and I felt like it just wasn't for me and wasn't motivated, was feeling drained from it, I, I might count. I might feel like that was a failure. Right. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this other thing that, you know, BD five, five months didn't work out, might consider that a failure. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how we all bounce back from failure is mm -hmm. you know unique to each and every one of us. But that word didn't come out of your mouth at all. Mm. And uh, I, I guess curious if in those times, in those moments, did you ever consider them failures? And just throughout life in general, what would you say your relationship is to failure? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, thing to bring up. So I did feel like I was failing because I was literally failing at the startup mix panel because I wasn't making sales. You know, I was, I was taking action getting meetings with these big companies, you know, with, with executives as a 23, 22 year old, I was taking action, but I wasn't producing results. So in that sense, I was literally failing, but emotionally, I, I did, I, I didn't lose context. I had no experience. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and I knew that, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I was still trying. And so I think in that sense, I wasn't like down on myself, even though I was actually failing, but kind of a deeper level for me, you know, the job, the engineering job that it, that I really didn't enjoy, but I was, you know, showing up every day. When, when I look at it, when I, when I find myself in a situation that I prefer not to be in, but I 
have to be in for whatever that's just some circumstance I'm in. What I've always done is figured out what actions I can take that are aligned with where I want to be. And for me, if I, if I know that I have some kind of plan, I'm taking some actions that are aligned with where I want to be, even though for the time being, I'm in a situation that isn't ideal, then I still feel like I'm making progress. Does that make sense? So not like if I was just twiddling my thumbs, not meeting anyone, working at the engineering job, you know, going out, drinking every day, going to dinner. And if I wasn't actually doing things outside of work that I felt like moved me forward, then I would be depressed. Then I'd feel like something's wrong. But I always had just the the drive to kind of have at least some level of clarity of like, this is what I want. And these are some actions I can take within my current current circuit current circumstances to get there. And I think as long as I can take those actions, I feel alive. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the word integrity really comes up and it's like, you know, at the end of the day, can I look at myself in the mirror and say, I did everything that I could to the best of my abilities. Mm -hmm. And if you can say yes to that, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, right? Because there's, there's nothing left to wonder. There's no what ifs, there's no, I should have really tried Mm -hmm. this instead. Um, yeah, you can look yep. yourself in the mirror and be like, I did everything that I could. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If I lay it out on the table, I have absolutely nothing to regret. Like, I did my best. Yeah, I love that. So now, looking at the startup, transition from startup to spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. What was that? What would that look like? Yeah, so you know, my first time going to Burning Man was that nine-month stretch before the startup. And after, right after I got fired from Mixed Panel, I packed everything I owned in my car. And like two weeks later, I got a ticket to Burning Man and just drove there. And that was 2010. And then we started the company. So I didn't go to Burning Man at all uh, for four years or so. But then around year four, I got kind of like the, the feeling that it was time to go back. So I, did, I went back to Burning Man in 2014. And just kind of synchronistically, I didn't have any plans to do, I, I didn't do, I wasn't, I didn't do any drugs or smoke or anything all up until this point in my life. Like I was pretty, you know, straight edge in that sense. But um, in 2014 at Burning Man, I had the opportunity to do LSD for the first time. And that actually is what opened my eyes to the way I would describe it is like for the first time in my life, I sensed that there was something more to the material world. Like all up until this point, I never really had an experience or question like the materiality of this world. Like there was no kind of spiritual essence in my in my conscious awareness. Um, but that actually yeah, opened my mind. I was like, curiosity is the word that comes to mind. It's like I, it made me curious about what more there is to life than than like everything I've been focusing on. And then, so like that kind of opened the door was was LSD. But then um, what really kind of started grounding it was I went to my first Vipassana meditation retreat uh, shortly after that. And, you know, Vipassana meditation retreats are 10 days, 10 hours a day of meditation, where for the entire 10 days, you don't talk to anyone else. You don't even look at anyone else. You keep your eyes on the ground when you walk around. And it's, it's a really intense. And, and that's how I got into meditation. You know, that's kind of a theme of mine. I kind of jump into things that feel, cause it felt, felt right. Something in me was like, this is for you, you know? And so uh, when I started meditating, you know, I did the Vipassana retreat that really opened my eyes to wanting to stop drinking and really just like 
be more healthy, take care of myself. And I was pretty healthy, but like, just like another level. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of like wanting to sit every day, you know, meditate every day. And, you know, I would still do the psychedelics. They were really helpful in continuing to kind of expand my awareness and my horizons in that sense. But yeah, when I started being curious about what more there was to life, I became less and less interested in, in working at my company, even though we were, we were, we had just hit that inflection point and we were growing really fast and had a hundred employees. But I thought after my first Vipassana that I would last another year or two, but I, within seven months, I was gone. Uh, I left the company within seven months. It just kept the desire to leave kept accelerating and like growing in me. And so, you know, I left in very good terms, but within halfway through that year, 2015, I was gone and I had no plans. I, my literal, I literally wrote an email to the company, you know, kind of just saying goodbye. And I ended it with like, I have no plans other than to flow and see where life takes me. And that's what I did. Did they think you were fucking crazy? I would say if I, my experience, this may be wrong, but is a combination of this dude's fucking crazy. And I wish I was doing what he was doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I feel like uh, that's the case with most crazy people or people (laughs) crazy. There's this like, there's, there's a sense of freedom or just being untethered to certain Uh narratives um, and social conditioning. That's like, that's scary and enticing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Now, did you have, was there some turmoil within you as far as like, holy shit, I feel burnt out. This is not exactly what I want to be doing, but it's going really well. Obviously, it seems like it was probably pretty promising for, you know, making money and, you know, mm-hmm. just being a successful entrepreneur. I would say I really, just what really allowed me to leave was that I really felt complete with my contribution to the company. Like that, and that comes back to the integrity piece. Like if I didn't feel like I was complete in my contribution, I would, I would have stuck it out, but we were almost five years in, I had worked my ass off. You know, I literally worked, I'd done the math. I worked nine years of 40 hour work weeks in those four and a half years or, or five years I was there, you know? Oh, so like, I, I felt really good about my contribution and I felt, I felt really good about where the company was going and I knew that they didn't need me anymore. And so that coupled with the fact that I was truly burnt out and my just general interests were going elsewhere. I felt, it felt really aligned to leave. Yeah. So it felt, it felt perfect actually. Mm. Yeah. I keep hearing this coming up and and you sharing and seems like you have, you're really good at listening to your internal compass and following Mm. it, even if it doesn't, makes sense logically mm-hmm. um you know there, there's been a couple times throughout your story where it's like it felt right or mm-hmm. i just knew um yeah. where do you think that comes from that's a good question and that that's something that i've had since i was a kid like just this feeling sometimes you know of like this is right for me even though it didn't make any sense or it was scary and the best explanation i have for it i think it's something innate and if you are familiar with human design, which is mm-hmm. a really beautiful system that kind of explains our nature and how to live based on our certain design. I'm a, a splenic manifester. And so I think splenic, right? Yeah. Splenic, which is kind of like instinctual. And I think it's that splenic instinctual aspect of myself that I've been in touch with my whole life. 
And the, that's what's in those really pivotal moments of decision, big decisions to make. I think that's what's guided me. And I think I would say I just feel grateful that I've been able to listen, to hear uh, that guidance. Because it's, it's very in the moment, like, boom. It's not something that kind of lingers. It's like when the, when the decision's happening, there's this impulse or this instinct that tells you yes or no. And that's what I've been able to kind of, that feeling, for some reason, I've been able to recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's a couple elements to the, the gut feeling, the instinct, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I think all of us have access to, um, but there's like, there's being able to recognize it or hear it. Right. Which is one. And then there's like, there's trusting it, right. Cause Mm -hmm. you could hear it, but not act upon it because of, uh, fear of what other people are going to think or fear that it's the wrong decision or, doesn't make sense to leave this job that's making me a lot of money and mm-hmm. has potential to make me even more money. Uh, it doesn't make sense to leave that and then go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess for you, you know, and I know in my experience, like I have strong instincts and I think for so long, I didn't trust them that it got mm-hmm. to the point where I couldn't even hear, I couldn't mm-hmm. hear them anymore. Right. It became mm-hmm. like a very, very faint whisper. And yeah. um, you know, in, in the, in the process of just being more authentically myself, that voice has gotten louder and louder. It's like, you know, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's almost like that voice trusts itself to be heard. So it'll speak a little louder mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, it's almost like this separate entity that trusts that I will listen to it and give, uh, give it validation, you know? Mm-hmm. Curious if like, yeah, what, what's you, is that your experience with it? Have you ever mm-hmm. had times or difficulty, like actually trusting your instinct or it's just always been, you've always had it. I would say. There's definitely times when I've made decisions that were bad, you know, that I would say were wrong. Um, I'm really around money, probably, you know, basically I would say it's not like I don't have fear, you know, fears have come up and definitely clouded my decision-making insecurities, worthiness issues, all that kind of stuff. And so I would say like for the really big decisions, I have been able to find that source, the instinct, the, the true guidance, but there's been, you know, I, I can't think of specific examples, but there's definitely moments like smaller decisions that fear has clouded my judgment or, you know, insecurity has clouded my judgment. Like that's definitely happened too. And the, and that's where I would say the kind of the ongoing spiritual kind of trauma healing embodiment work has really helped me the most. Cause it's like, you know, when, when I first started waking up, it was like, whoa, these big revelations, these big kind of insights, understandings about myself, about life, you know, from my perspective, um, but the ongoing process of actually like embodying those teachings on a day-to-day moment-to-moment basis, you know, that's been, that's like the long tail, you know, where it's like, you know, cleaning out the, like the nooks and crannies, like, you know, with a little pickaxe, like getting all the little, the little nuggets out of my system that are still kind of clouded. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, I want to dive into the this like spiritual awakening and um, kind of, I guess, working on yourself is just like mm-hmm. what comes up for me. Maybe it's not the best way to say it, but mm-hmm. on paper up to this point, like you're pretty perfect, man. You went to MIT, 
you know, you, yeah, you, you moved around a little bit, but you, you found, you know, co-founded what is a successful startup I, mm-hmm. I would uh, consider. And it's like, oh, what the fuck does this guy have to work on? You know, so mm-hmm. in that, you know, what what are some of the things that you what were some of the revelations that you had? And like, oh, wow, this is a unhealed part of me or this is a part mm-hmm. of me that just needs to be addressed. I would say, actually, I'm going to take it back to growing the company. So I was terrified pretty much every day of those five years we built that company, like either low level, just extreme insecurity, anxiety, um, or just, you know, sweating bullets in meetings. Like Mm. I was in a a board meeting once, like, and I started sweating bullets, you know, fortunately I wasn't speaking. So I could excuse myself to the bathroom, but like I would have these anxiety attacks working in this company. Um, I actually remember the moment when it kind of felt like my nervous system broke because I put so much pressure on myself in this one, this one meeting, this one day, this thing that was happening. And I felt like I was, I did feel like I was failing in that moment. And I, like, I had this kind of anxiety attack in real time where I just started sweating bullets. And since then, you know, fortunately I've kind of grown, I've healed enough to where it doesn't really happen anymore, but pretty much almost the entire four years or the the last three or four years, I would say of the company, you know, probably like I had to structure my life around trying not to break out and have an anxiety attack. So it's like, I was, I was taking this mass, you know, to me, massive action in the sense of building this company with this team and everyone. Um, but every day was a challenge to do the work while with this kind of almost overwhelming anxiety. Like it was, it was really challenging to just show up and and do the work because of my fears, my insecurities, you know, cause like I was a 20 something year old in, in black man, you know, that's never been, it's, it's never, you know, as, as a man of color, right. It's, I'm sure you can relate, you know, growing up my whole life, there's always this kind of undertone that I'm a black man, you know, I'm not a man, I'm a black man in America. And like, that was with me, you know, being in this predominantly white male, you know, Silicon Valley tech world, I was aware of that. And so it definitely contributed to my anxiety for sure. And so on paper, yeah, it looks great and it is great, but like the day to day was definitely with, with challenges because I hadn't done the healing work I've done in the last, you know, five to seven years at that point. Mm. So I guess, you know, you touched on a little bit, but what, what was underneath that anxiety? Generally it was, and I can speak to this now kind of mostly being on the other side, kind of foundationally just general insecurity, you know, as a human being, um, the challenges I faced as a child, you know, my, my family had, uh, financial issues. My parents got divorced when I was in seventh grade. Uh, and when I was in fourth grade, I, I was in a car accident that left my face scarred, which you can see here. Um, you know, I would say those are like the most traumatic events of my life, of my childhood. And, you know, they, they left their mark and, um, you know, for the last seven years or so that I've been on my healing journey, um, seven or eight years, you know, those are the things that I've just come back to time and time again, more and more layers of healing the things that happened in, in, in my childhood. So I think the, you know, and, and on the racial front, like my dad, you know, growing up in or living in Wisconsin, um, he experienced so much racism in the workplace, especially he was an incredibly gifted engineer and designer and artist. 
yet he couldn't keep a job for too long of a period because something would come up racially, you know, generally speaking. Um, and even though I was a kid, you know, as kids, we, we pick up on what our parents go through. Right. And so I unconsciously picked up on what my dad's struggles were racially and just in general as a man trying to make it in the world. And, um, that unconscious conditioning I've had to reprogram in myself. I've had to heal and reprogram consciously in myself. So like, those are kind of like, just kind of, I guess, glimpses into some of the, the traumas that I experience um, that I've had to, that, that I carried with me through my twenties and the, that company, you know, and even to, to, to this day, even though I've done a lot of healing work on. Yeah. That's incredible, man. Yeah. I can, uh, just it's it's crazy how much um, not that you followed in your dad's footsteps, but just how much of, you know, the man that he was is reflected in you. Um, but, you know, you've taken a very reflective uh, uh, point of view, not only to your life, but I think to your father's as well and have really picked up some of the other missing puzzle pieces, so to say and uh added them to your tool belt and yeah just thinking of like you know we you hear a lot like in the coaching space and the personal development of like you know face off with these things um and i think there's a knowing that we have you know for a lot of us there's the knowing that there's something there maybe i know that i have this anxiety or i know that i have these insecurities um but i think for a lot of guys myself included it comes to a point where it's like, well, I know that they're there, but I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So yeah. What do you have to share about that? Yeah. That's a good way to, to phrase that. So it wasn't until I started waking up spiritually that I really, I would say I woke up to my suffering. So it's like, I knew I was anxious, but I didn't know what to do about it. The whole, you know, when I was growing the business, you know, until I was 26 or seven and I had that first awakening. Um, when I started to wake up and I started to meditate because Vipassana is essentially, you know, it's essentially a self-reflective embodiment practice, right? The meditation retreat I went to, like, that's where I started learning and realizing that um, I had the power. Well, like I had the power to change myself, to reprogram myself, to, to change my conditioning. And for me, it started at the belief level where I re- I started realizing that I had these unconscious negative beliefs about myself. Like I'm not worthy, you know, general things like that, like, like a lot of people have. And so when I first started my journey, I would say I started on that level of, Oh, I feel insecure. How can I change that? Well, I'm going to tell myself I am secure. I am worthy. You know, I am sacred. I, I deserve this, you know, at the mental level, that's kind of how I started. Now, that's not enough to really do the full healing, but that was kind of the gateway. And so I remember there was a clear period of a two or so years where I st- started to separate myself from the negative thoughts. I, I, had, I would say I grew in my conscious awareness enough to realize that I wasn't these feelings or I wasn't these thoughts. And so it took, you know, meditation and the psychedelics to really expand my mental and conscious awareness to the point where I could actually separate myself from 
those identities or those feelings or thoughts. And I say that was the first step of, oh, I'm not that. I can see it, this negative thought that's happening in real time as I'm in this social interaction that makes me feel anxious. And I, I had to consciously say that's not true. I'd be having a, throwing a party at our house and with friends that we love and, you know, all these little micro interactions would make me feel so insecure or so unworthy, you know, and it was all my stuff, but I was able to say that's not real. But the hard part is that it feels so real. It's so convincing that it's true that I had to choose to not believe it, even though it felt real. I would say that's like, that was the, the trick that is the bit most challenging part because in your body, in your emotions, you're in, in your nervous system, these negative thoughts and emotions feel so real, but I had to use my conscious awareness to choose to override the feeling and just choose for it not to be real. And so there is a, a couple year period where I was choosing things that didn't feel I, I was choosing to not feel things as real that felt real. So there's like this weird dissonance. You, you get that what I'm saying? Where it, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable because your senses and your nervous system is telling you something, one thing, and you're choosing to believe another thing. But doing that for a long enough period cleared out. They, they just stopped the negative thoughts just stopped happening. They just stopped. Like at some point they just slowly faded and faded. And now like I pretty much don't have any negative thoughts in the way that I used to at all. That's really, <laughs> that's really incredible. It, it makes me think of, um, I really love to rock climb. And mm -hmm. so the, you know, one of the most primal instincts that we have is, uh, fear of heights. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's hardwired into us, you know, from our ancestors and all that. And so when I first started climbing, I was very afraid of heights. So, you know, you're climbing up and grip is just like super tense. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's this narrative playing that's like, I could fall to my death. Right. I, I could fall from this, this large cliff rock face and fall to my death. And, as you continue to climb, it's like, yes, you have evidence that you're safe. Um, but, you know, as you continue to climb, you keep doing more and more difficult things, you know, lead climbing and, you know, things that have more risk in them. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's a similar thing in the sense that it's like you you're telling yourself that I I I'm not going to fall or yes, that that is a potential. But actually what I'm doing is climbing to the next checkpoint, to the next spot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it comes to a point where you just don't, you're not thinking about the fall or your fear of heights or, you know, 300 feet of open air underneath you, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's like kind of the example that came up to me in the sense that um, there is this weird dissonance that's happening, you know, at least in the beginning part of the process. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we're writing a new script and to write yep. a new script, we have to let go of that old one. Yep. And that can be pretty pretty fucking uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. That, I think that's a good analogy. I think that that feels like, yeah, it's a really good analogy. I think it's just, it's really uncomfortable, but that's what, that's what I did is I was in real time writing new scripts for myself. You know, I felt, you know, someone, you know, I, I would say something someone have a reaction and I'd feel insecure and I'd tell myself, no, I am secure or no, they're not feeling the way I'm thinking they're feeling. They're fine. You know, it's like, 
in real time, just rewriting my script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I re- uh, you bringing up the insecurity um, and some of the racial conversation as well with both yourself and your dad uh, really made me think about how much insecurity that I had growing up and, you know, still, it's still there. I'm just a little bit better at identifying and, and uh, moving through it. But I think just being a man of color in this, uh, in this country, it's, it's really, it's a really common sentiment mm-hmm. and it's not really talked about that much, you know, but I think there's um, there's an overall cultural narrative uh, that there, there's a, there's less worth being a man of color, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that can be nuanced in how it's and how it's portrayed. You know, I don't think that I ever had anyone in my upbringing being like, you are, you, your, your worth is less. You're not worth as much as, you know, this, this white kid over here, mm-hmm. but, you know, just from pictures that we see in media, from stories, from how history is told, you know, all these things, I think, uh, uh, underlying deep sense of insecurity is a very, very common thing for us to feel. And yeah, I, I'm curious if you've ever had that conversation with other black men, men mm-hmm. of color. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, for a little bit after black Panther came out, I, um, I started this thing called black King circle, which is kind of like a men's circle for black men. So definitely this is a important topic that I enjoy talking about. So in my experience, it's really interesting, you know, it is largely has been like the media and America's history, how it was taught to me and the lack of context, lack of proper context that I had or didn't have, I would say that made me susceptible to be conditioning of, I am less worthy because I'm a black man, right? The media is obvious, America's history, that's obvious, right? Every, we all know what happened there. Um, and so it's like, as a black child, you know, it's just so easy to see the overwhelming evidence out there that black people are a certain way, you know, worth less, white people are worth more, whatever. Um, So it's a really subtle, unconscious conditioning that uh, I picked up and a lot of us, most of us probably pick up uh, as children. Uh, not to mention the direct experiences I had with racism, either through my dad or you know, direct experiences I had growing up as a kid in high school, et cetera, because I, I definitely had them. I would say I'm I'm grateful that they, they could have been a lot worse, but you know, I, I experienced them for sure. And when I started diving into my my healing work, it's funny. So when my, Gigi, my wife and I, we started dating, you know, you know, of course, she has that beautiful feminine intuition where she can just see something clearly that I'm like, no, 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 it's not there. And years later, I'm like, oh, I see what you're talking about. So she was right. Shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when we first started dating, she was like, uh, she she pointed out like my, I, I don't remember exactly how she phrased it, but basically my lack of like feelings around racial aspects, you know, police shootings, things like that. I wouldn't really react. And I was like, if I thought I didn't have any feelings. But when I got into my healing journey more deeply into my healing journey and like specifically my racial and ancestral aspect of my healing journey, then I I actually found I uncovered all of the racial trauma I had. I I did have in my consciousness and in my body. Um, And that's when I started doing that work. And it was uh, kind of coincidentally around the time that Black Black Panther came out, which was a really inspiring movie for me (laughs) to really loved. 
just just seeing it's crazy like i remember seeing this one uh, video on, on on facebook when the movie came out there was these black guys looking at the black panther poster saying like this is what white people feel like all the time because every almost all the cast was black like that representation yeah my wife and i went to ghana for a part of our honeymoon and just being in a country where everyone's black the billboards are black people black people everywhere it's incredibly different than growing up in america where it's the opposite of that and so i I do think about that you know when when we raise our kids um how i want them to be around people of color because it does make a difference representation makes a difference my brother my mom tells a story when he was a kid he went up to her one day and he said mommy how come there's no successful black people Mm. he's a kid and he said that you know so it's like what we see out there to the the child consciousness adolescent consciousness it has a big impact because we use our out there to understand who we are as children like because we're it's an immature consciousness right as adults we don't we define ourselves internally and project it out but it's the opposite as a kid right that's just how it is and so yeah i experienced the same thing growing up and suddenly i got into my healing journey like i had to undo all of that unconscious programming that i had taken on and then choose for who I really choose to be, who I really was, choose who I really was that I wanted to be, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It makes, it makes perfect sense. Such a powerful story with your brother, man. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, representation is just so important. And I really love the breakdown of how as children, we kind of define ourselves or we're defining ourselves by looking what's outside of us, where mm-hmm. um, ideally as we become adults, that, that starts to turn inwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So black King circle, I, I was, I was part of it for a little bit. And uh-huh. uh, I, I really, I remember to this day when you reached out to me and told me it was something that you were doing, I was so grateful for it because at that point I had been in, you know, men's workspace for quite a bit. And one of my uh, complaints gripes was that there wasn't enough men of color in mm-hmm. the spaces that I was in at least. Mm-hmm. Um and I, for me, my experience of being in the Black King Circle was it just allowed for deeper layers of vulnerability and conversations that I just couldn't have with people that wouldn't mm-hmm. understand what it's yep. like to be a Black man in America and what it's like to, you know, think about, you know, think about what you look like, right? When you step mm-hmm. outside of the house or when you're driving your car or, you know, all the other nuanced things that are part of our experience and stories. Um, so I want to thank you for creating that space. And, you know, I also want to say, ask you for, you know, young black men, men of color out there that might be dealing with that sense of insecurity, uh, self-worth and confidence. And, you know, what I think of is like all those things, what they limit the most is our audacity to ask for what we need. Right. Because if you don't think you're worth it and mm-hmm. you're not going to ask for what you need. So, you know, for any man out there that's dealing with that, you know, what, what would you recommend them do in order to, uh, yeah, help heal that part of themselves? That's a tough question. Let me, let me feel into it. What's coming up is something I, I want to bring up around the topic, which is forgiveness. So I'm just going to kind of riff here. 
in general, I would say, you know, black men, black people, people who have suffered oppression, you know, there's generally like an anger or resentment towards the oppressor for what was done or what is being done. And in my experience, like being stuck in anger, you know, anger had, is a perfectly valid emotion. It has its time and place, but when we're stuck in it, it becomes counterproductive because we can't move through it to what's deeper. And generally below anger is grief, you know, for having been wronged. And that grief, in my experience, that that's reflective of the trauma itself. Like the pain of the trauma creates this feeling of grief, but because the pain is so great, we're not able to touch it but but a, kind of a layer around it is this anger right so we we get angry we want to fight you know um and so for me like the most powerful thing i was able to do that unlocked me from feeling like a victim because i think that's kind of like what we're alluding to is like feeling like a victim mm. um is being able to forgive my oppressors now the way i was able to do that is by creating what I call an, an empathy bridge. Basically, I was able to, and this happened, it took time and lots of meditation and really like deep self-reflection and understanding like what, re, why do people really, forget about race, why do people hurt other people, right? Why do we act that way? And uh, it, it, it took me back to, you know, and I read some books and things like that and realizing that, you know, a lot of the colonizers, you know, taking it back that far, they would leave the place they were to go some other place and start oppressing, you know, indigenous people. Um, but what were they doing largely was treating those indigenous people the same way they were being treated where they came from. So like a lot of times those people came from really harsh environments where they were treated really poorly. And that, when I realized that, that's what helped me understand why, you know, oppressors oppress the oppressed, you know, why white people treated people of color that way, to say it, to say it that way. Um, and it basically, it goes kind of goes back to hurt people, hurt people, you know, people who are hurt, hurt other people. They project that hurt onto others. When I understood that, it opened my eyes to be able to see the humanity of my oppressor, if that makes sense, and actually have empathy for them as a hurt human being, because I was a hurt human being, you know, I could relate to them that way. And I know that when I'm hurt, sometimes I project that hurt into other people, right? That's like getting stuck in the anger. You know, you want to lash it out. Um, and so when I realized that and I made that connection, that kind of called that empathy bridge, when I realized that hurt people hurt people, I, I was able to see the humanity of them and actually reach a level of forgiveness because I understood more deeply where they were coming from and how they could treat me or my family or my ancestors or my, my people or any people that way. And for me, being able to forgive, I guess it like unlocked like my feeling of, of victimhood or anger, resentment. I was able to, like, everything just kind of unlocked and I was just able to sit in the grief of humans are just kind of messy, hurt, you know, imperfect beings, raw learning. And I think the level deeper is like, there's a level of innocence of unconsciousness or innocence in that action. Cause you know, and this may be debatable, I don't know, but you know, generally when we hurt someone, 
there's a level of unconsciousness that we're acting from. And because it's unconscious, there's a level of innocence, right? And so that's what allows me to see the humanity in that person that's behaving a bad way. So I don't know if this answers your question, but it's kind of like, it's what's coming up you know, on the topic. And, but, and I do think it's an important point though, because for me, learning how to forgive people who have hurt me has been the most empowering thing I can do for myself to no longer feel like a victim. I think it's a great answer, man. Um, I love the, the empathy bridge. And I also love the validating our, the anger and resentment that's felt. Mm -hmm. And also um, having the, that willingness to go deeper to the underlying layer, which grief, which I totally agree with. Um, and that how those in, allow for forgiveness. Um, I also think, you know, what you laid out is, what I see um, ancestral healing being, mm -hmm. you know, yep, you know, exactly. now, whether that's from, whether that's uh, colonizers and what, what has been done by other people to your ancestors or things that have occurred in your own lineage, um, being able to see the humanity in mm -hmm. those that have wronged us or wronged those that we love um, doesn't make what they did. Okay. Right. But it enables us to, I guess reclaim power, you know, is really what yeah. I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Reclaiming that power and, and just being choiceful about how we want to then move forward as opposed to this reactionary pattern. That's really just repeating the pattern that's been done before, even if it's something that we despise, something that we're very angry about. It's really, it's really easy to just recreate that if we don't get to that sense of understanding our grief around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like a spaciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a, it's been a big process for me as well, man. And I think that, I think um, there's, there's levels and layers to forgiveness, you know, and I, I know for me, I've forgiven in the past and this could just be my wife. This could be, you know, someone that's done something really bad to me. It could be, you know, slavery and all that, you know, I, I've forgiven things in the past in a sense to just like get past it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Or, or to be able almost like that forgive and forget is what comes up for me. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. less forgiveness, more just wanting to forget about it so that I can move on. And uh, it seems like those things will always end up coming up if it's not been addressed, healed and truly forgiven. Yeah, we forgive for ourselves. It's not for the other person or the other group of people. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, see if I can like touch this. My experience is the forgiveness allowed me to let go of, it, it was, it's kind of like I was holding on to this pain in a righteous way. Like you wronged me. I feel pain. It's your fault. But when I was able to forgive them, you know, I, I'm not religious, but the, the, the Jesus Christ quote, for, forgive them, forgive them father for they know not what they do. That's one of the most powerful, profound quotes for me personally, because hmm. imagine this man being crucified, saying those words. I think that's when he said it, saying those words being actively crucified, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's, that is compassion. That is recognizing that the people who are harming you 
are acting from unconsciousness, you know, for the most part, you know, there are psychotic people, sociopaths who do it for pleasure. I think that's, you know, not the case we're talking about. Like generally people are acting from unconsciousness. It's, they don't actually know what they're doing. I, I believe that you know, in a very deep level. And when I'm able to really believe that and know that in my body, it's like that righteousness that makes me want to hold on to my pain because they wronged me. It just dissolves into just the truth, which it's just unconsciousness. That's what unconsciousness does. Sometimes unconsciousness hurts because it doesn't actually know the truth. It's acting out of its own pain and projecting that out instead of it healing its pain, you know? So for me, like you said, you, you mentioned perpetuating the pattern or breaking the pattern, right? My goal is to no longer perpetuate harm. Like this is kind of coming to me right now, but like I do my best to take responsibility for my pain and own it and heal it. And then, and that essentially creates a new cycle, but it's really tough work. It's, it's, it's really, yeah, challenging to do that uh, completely. Absolutely. Yeah. When I hear that taking responsibility for our own pain, um, one thing that comes up for me and forgiveness as well, kind of all these things is, uh, like spiritual bypassing, right? Bypassing. And I guess, you know, where does that fit into the conversation and how do you know the difference between authentically Mm -hmm. healing and addressing, you know, some of the wounds that, that we all have, uh, forgiving others. And yeah, where does, where does bypassing fit into the conversation and how do we know when that's something we're doing? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think for me, bypassing happens when we aren't, present with what's really coming up with us or within us. Right. So generally, you know, bypassing happens because something happens and it evokes pain, but the pain is too great for us to be with. So instead of us feeling it, we kind of rebound from it maybe at the anger level or something or the fear level. And we reject something out. We take some outward action, right? We bypass the truth, which is what we're really feeling, which is really painful. And so uh, for me, it, how to get over or how to not bypass is it's it requires feeling like learning how to feel what's in your body, which is it's a lifelong task probably. Like I, you know, for me, like med- long meditations for years now is really what has allowed me to go deeper into my body, and that's the embodiment aspect of it, like the long tail I mentioned. And the more I go into my body, the more I could feel the more capacity I have to be with what, with life. Right. So then the less bypassing I do, that's like my, my experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It kind of always just circles back to the ability to go within and be honest and integral about what's actually happening inside of there. And, uh, you know, honest and integral with it. And also just developing the practice of slowing down and quieting down enough that we can actually, listen to Mm -hmm. what's going on within because you know there's there's a lot of external stimulus that's jockeying for our attention Mm -hmm. and the more we focus on that the less we can actually pay attention and hear what's going on within yeah i think that's where for me meditation has been incredibly helpful like when i first started i could barely sit for 15 minutes i was still working at my company i did the vipassana i went home and like my goal is 15 minutes a day and i could i was squirming by like minute 10 like it was hard (laughs) 
Um, but over time, over years, I, I learned how to expand my capacity and sit for longer stretches. And I found that when I sit for longer stretches, you know, one, two hours, three, four hours, it's pretty common these days. Um, sometimes like my longest is like 11 hours. Like when I can just sit still for that period long of time and, and focus and go into my body, then that's what's been helpful for me to be able to expand my capacity to be with all the things that come up. Mm. but yeah, it, it requires well taking that time. Like you have to, you have to set that time aside. And, and that's what's challenging for a lot of people. I think is to actually make that time for themselves. Absolutely. Well, I think it's like, you know, it's like any skill or a muscle, right. It, it, in order to get better at it, you have to train it. And I think um, we only allocate time to things that we see as uh profitable in a way, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. if it, if it doesn't have value, then I'm not going to create the time for it. And I think, I think sometimes it's hard to see the value in sitting still for 15 minutes and going within. Yeah. And uh, I always love talking to you about these sorts of things. Cause I think you have a, you have a great capacity to go high, like very ethereal and also <laughs> go very low, like rooted and grounded. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, when at least for me as a man when i can see both of those things it becomes it becomes more enticing it becomes more mm -hmm. valuable it becomes worth setting you know waking up 20 minutes early so i can sit mm -hmm. for 15 minutes so i i really love how you're able to share about those things and how they've it impacted you in real time mm -hmm. yeah thank you so the last thing i want to talk about because we, there's so many more things to talk about, but you know, maybe we'll have to do an episode two. Uh -huh. um, I want to talk about your art. You mentioned it before. Uh, you talked about you talked about activated art, and I know this is something that kind of came along with going to Burning Man, taking mm -hmm. space from you know startup world, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, kind of coincides with your spiritual awakening. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk about art a little bit. Again, creation, I think, is something that's innate in all of us and super important for us to do as humans. Mm -hmm. However, especially as men, I know we can put less value on art and yep. creation because we need to survive, right? And if it's not making us money, then why am I going to make time for it? You know, mm -hmm. I have Bill A, B, and C to, to pay for and take care of. So tell me your history with art. Is it something that you've always loved and been doing? Um, and then tell me how, you know, a little bit more about activated art and how that's like blossomed for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've always been artistic, creative, you know, my whole life. It's, it's in my family, it's in my blood, but when I, you know, I would create it in my tea. I would definitely, I enjoyed my time there working in the machine shops and everything. But when I, when I started building the company became, you know, was in California in my twenties, I I pretty much put my whole creative side on the side to the side to focus on money, building the company, like you're saying. And it wasn't until, yeah, after I left the company about six months later that I got the inspiration for the sculpture. But, and then the next year I started making the mandalas, the activated art. Um, but it wasn't until 2018, three years after I left the company, before I was about to go back to work, that what happened was I was meditating and I went deep and I, I felt the pain of not allowing that side of myself out for so long. 
and it was devastating pain. I was crying. Like it was, it was such deep pain for having essentially cut that side of myself off for uh, call it a decade, you know, or, or so something like that, eight years. Um, and it was when I realized that I was like, wow, like I, I, I can't for any longer not be that, not let my artistic side out. Like I have to do this. And it would, that was like two months before I was going to go back to work. Right. So I was like about to go back into the grinder, you know, but like, I was like, I had to do it. And so, so I, I did, you know, I created activated art or, or I kind of revamped it, but, you know, did a Kickstarter, raised $30,000 to build these, to these uh, laser cut mandalas. And uh, that coincided with starting my new job. So I was, I was busy, but I was passionate and fueled because I was doing what I was meant to do, you know, or at least opening that part of myself up. And so it's kind of connected with the spiritual, spiritual aspect of, of it is, you know, my art has been, it, it's my understanding of it. Now it really is a gift to the world. Like at first my ego wanted to make it a business. I don't want to make a bunch of money from it and all that stuff. And it very quickly taught me that that's not what it wants. You know, my art has, it's really beautiful. It's like almost like it's like this sentient creature, this being that I'm collaborating, co-creating with. And like, if I get out of alignment, then it will like slap my wrist and be like, no, that's not right. One way or another, something will happen that will go wrong. And like, okay, that wasn't right. That was my ego coming in, trying to co-opt this for its own gain. And so like, I really learned how to surrender my own needs or desires to the creative process to allow myself to be a channel for this, this art, this expression to come through and be a gift for the world. I really experienced that with the sculpture I built for Burning Man, um, but also similarly with, with the uh, activated art mandalas that I create now. So now my focus is I just create when I'm inspired to create and I do sell them They're on my website, but I don't like push it or market or anything. Like if people want to see it and they want to buy it, great. If not, that's cool too. It's really just, this is my gift and I, and I love to give it. I love that, that, uh, visual of channeling, you know, both of us are, are, uh, members of the Native American church and, you know, one, one analogy that's used is that we want to be like that Eagle bone whistle that's hollow mm -hmm. and yep. just harnessing the, uh, you know, the voice, the harnessing creation and creator. Right. Yep. And really I feel like art is such an is like, at least for me and my experiences is probably the purest way to do that. You mm -hmm. know, and I think you hear musicians, painters, any, any medium, you know, people express that in different ways, but essentially it's like channeling the unseen and, and putting it into the, the physical realm. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially it's like, this is a way we want to be in all areas and aspects of our life. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not an easy thing to do, but art is such a excellent way to practice that way of being, mm -hmm. and then be able to expand that out into the different areas and domains mm -hmm. of your life. Yeah, I think when you said like, this is how we want to be in all of life, I think that's spot on, like to be that channel for spirit to flow through moment to moment, you know, I think that is like, if I call it, call it a goal, like, or in, that's an intention of mine to be able to be that moment to moment. Um, but my art has definitely taught me in real time, you know, that that's true, you know, that there's that it's not about us. It's not about me you know, 
like art or life. It's, it's more about how can I be of service to this greater purpose that, or maybe to rephrase it is how can I open up to the opportunity to be of service to the greater purpose that wants to live through me, but is blocked by my own trauma conditioning ego, that kind of things. Right. So it's like, my work is to clear myself out, which is like my primary focus in life right now is clearing myself out in, in my body, my energy body, emotional body, all kind of stuff. So I can be of greatest service to the greater purpose that I know is like knocking on the door to live through me, you know? I think that is, uh, that's ancestral healing, personal development and, you know, self-work that, that is the purpose of it. And I think you just Mm -hmm. articulated it. Couldn't say it any better. You know, it's like identifying the blockages, removing them and getting out of our own way so we can, you know, channel some higher, higher source for the sake of being of service to our brothers and sisters. Yep. Being of service to our communities. Yeah. (laughs) Very well said, man. I think that's, uh, I think that's, we can tie it up with a bow right there. Um, Man, there's so many more things that I wanted to talk about, but uh, we're going to do a number two. Yeah, let's do a number we're two. Gonna dedicate. We're going to dedicate a whole thing to reality transfer. <laughs> yes. It, you, you know, it's a book that you put me on to that's been blowing my mind. So I, awesome. I, I really would love to have a longer conversation about that one. Look forward to it. I love that too. Awesome. So before we hop off here, Jeremy, is there any final words, anything that's like there present within you that you want to leave the listeners with? Nothing really is just, I just want to say thank you, you know, to you and Jetty. And I really have such deep respect for you, uh, both of you and the rising man movement and the impact that you're having on the world on these men. You know, I've been fortunate enough to be part of the community for over two years now, I think. And, uh, it's one of the most important parts of my life. So I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to speak on this platform and for, for you guys for doing this great work. Mm. Really appreciate those words, man. It means a lot coming from you. Awesome. Last but not least, uh, big yourself up. If people want to reach out to you, if they want to see your artwork, anything you want to talk about or promote. Sure. Uh, my website, my personal website is jrich.io. Uh, my art is activated-art.com. Um, so yeah, those are the places people can can see my work and what I'm up to. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again for making time for this conversation. I really appreciate all the beautiful words that you dropped here and always love being in conversation with you, man. All right, thanks, man. It was a great time. Much, yeah, much love. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. I always love chatting with Jeremy. I really hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. What I'm really stepping away with is uh, two huge things. One, Jeremy's ability to dream big and confidently trust in himself to have a large vision and then being willing to tie up his boots and walk the walk in order to achieve that vision. And the other aspect that I'm really taking away is this sense of radical responsibility, taking responsibility for um, all the things that we feel and really putting in the work whatever way that looks, whether it's meditation, whether it's uh, coaching, whatever it may be, taking the action in order to address those things that are going on within us so that we can then create, create 
so that we can then create our own storyline and really just be the authors of our lives. I want to thank you guys again for listening to Fam Life. This is a special episode because it marks 12 months. It's the 12th episode. Been doing one a month for this past year. So this is the first year in the books of Fam Life. So I just want to thank you for the support, for checking in, for listening to this show. It's uh, really just me putting my heart and soul and passion into this. I want to thank Mark Rose. I want to thank Julian Subic, Jetty Azuma, Sean Barry and the rest of the Rising Man team for just being an inspiration for me to to give my gift and live my vision and doing that through this here podcast. If you love Fam Life and you love the Rising Man podcast, subscribe to us in whatever platform that you might be listening to, leave a review and pass it along to a friend. Much love and until next time, stay up. Yeah.